Hi, José Fernando. Hi, Ana. Great How to see you. you. Nice to see you too. So today my guest is José Fernando Gonçalves. He's a principal research scientist at Amazon with contributions in the fields of OR and applied mathematics. He's most known for his work with metaheuristics, in particular, biased random key genetic algorithms, as well as for his work on the job shop scheduling. His areas of expertise are optimization, heuristics and metaheuristics, scheduling, cutting and packing, facility layout, inventory management, and OR modeling. He has published over 50 papers on combinatorial optimization and edited a book on inventory management. José Fernando is on the editorial board of International Transactions in Operational Research, and he was a professor at the School of Engineering and the School of Economics of Porto University from 1986 to 2016. José Fernando, thank you so much uh, for accepting the invitation. I'm so happy you're here. Uh, tudo bem? How are you? I'm fine, thank you. It's my pleasure to, to be here. So you were born in 1959 in the city of Porto in Portugal. Yes, I'm very proud. Uh, you know that Porto gave name to Portugal. The name Portugal comes from Porto. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, but now you know. Okay? <laughs> so there are two cities, Porto, and the other side of the river, it's called Calen. So originally, you know, they put together, it was Porto Calen. And, mm. then, and then the name evolved. Okay. Wow, fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so we are very proud because Portugal has name in our city. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, and what about your family background? Okay, my family background uh, is very humble. Okay, both my parents come from uh, the, the country. And uh, my mother's uh, family, most of them were, you know, in the furniture making business. Okay. Mm -hmm. And my father was uh, a shepherd. He was taking ships to the mountains and then he would go for a month or so he would come back my mother they were really poor so um, in my grandparents they didn't have enough money for all those 11 kids so she stopped uh, studying when she was eight years old and she went to work for some rich people in the area where they were living okay and she would live just uh, there and uh, the only payment she was getting was food and she worked like that until she was 20 years old wow so she was working for free yes like a well almost a slavery you know wow yeah uh... so those times were very difficult you know it was also during the the war you know the the second world war so the the country was also very poor Mm -hmm. So it was very difficult to live that time. Yeah. And my father my father was also difficult but at least you know they had the enough food. So they didn't have a very good condition. So my father didn't know how to read until he came from the army. So I think he finished primary school at night by the time he was 30 years old. Wow. Yeah, so you really, uh, your parents really have a humble background and 
you mentioned your mom had a lot of uh, siblings. Uh, your dad also uh, had many siblings, or he was there only a couple of uh, kids around? It was the same number, 11. They were 11. 11 for my mother and 11 for my father. Wow. So 20 yes, uncles and aunts. Yes. And lots of cousins. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So your parents own a restaurant and, and you used to, to, to play there and... Uh... Yes. So so after, you know, my, parent, my parents got married, you know, the, the, the skills that my mother had and my father... My father always wanted to have some business. So my mother learned how to cook very well and uh, and how to sew too. She could make some clothes. So they decided to, you know, start a small restaurant. Okay. So initially they start a large restaurant. It was a little difficult to manage. So then they changed to a smaller one. So uh, most of my life, you know, until I graduated from uh, university, I spent it at the restaurant, okay, with my parents. Mm -hmm. So it was also hard life because you have to work all the time. You, know? you cannot stop uh, during Christmas or uh, Sundays because that's when you have the customers. Uh -huh. So, uh, uh, but uh, but they had a good life. You know, they provided uh, almost everything I needed. I was lucky because engineering was uh, in Oporto. I could find the university. If it was law school, it would have been a lot uh, more difficult because um, I would have to travel to find uh, some lodging. So that would probably cost my parents a lot more money and uh, I don't know if they could do it. Mm. But since the university was within a walking distance, I could go every day and... Um, but I had everything, you know, they provided, you know, books. I had no complaints and... Uh, um, I didn't have a car like my colleagues, or uh, <laughs> but uh, I had enough, you know, to go to school. Right. Books and food and everything. Uh -huh. uh, you mentioned that you have many uncles and, uh, and aunts. Uh, so I was kind of expecting that somehow you had some type of family business, but apparently they started their own business independently. Um, and I think you mentioned once that you have one particular aunt with 23 children. Yes, she had 23 children. Uh, see, my my uncle, he wanted a boy, okay? Mm -hmm. So he kept getting girls. So he was trying to get uh, a boy. And uh, for some reason, the boys had a problem. So they would uh, be born. And then maybe after two or three years, they would die. Mm -hmm. So he would try again. And they tried until uh, she got 22, uh, 22 kids. Okay, so... Yeah, it was lots, It's... lots of kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they didn't have TV at that time. So yeah. <laughs> so uh, I have a, I have a uh, curiosity. So when you were attending classes in school, how uh, the former Portuguese colonies were presented? Well, at the time that I was a kid, you know, there was still you know a dictatorship in Portugal. So all the colonies were presented as a big thing from Portugal, you know, a small country that is able to, you know, go to Africa, to Brazil. Brazil, I remember, you know, they, all, they were always saying, okay, Brazil is 100 times the size of Portugal. It was very, very important thing. And Angola, I think it was around 14 times. So the colonies were presented as a very good thing from us, okay. And... Um, 
it was something to be proud. Okay. I remember that I was in some uh, school provided by the government at the weekends where I would have to transmit signals with the, uh, how do you say, flags. Uh -huh. You know, you would have to show flags. And uh, uh, one of the things that we had to transmit is Angola belongs to us. <laughs> okay, that's the thing that we had to transmit. So I think the, you know, the state was trying to convince everybody that Portugal was very, very good, and uh, and that was a kind of way of keeping people united and forgetting about democracy and all that. That okay. right. So um, it was like a brainwashing. Ah, okay. Uh, you grew up during the dictatorship regime in Portugal, as you mentioned. Uh, do you have any memories from that period? outside school <laughs> well uh, the, the things that i still remember is that sometimes you know students that were at university they would protest and uh, i remember the police going after the you know the the students and uh, beating them so oh. that i remember but uh, when the revolution happened i think it was in 75 so i was 15 16 years old and um, i was not too much into politics okay in fact i didn't know there were politics before mm -hmm. i knew those problems but that's what i remember i i remember there were also some uh, political police that if you were against uh, you know the regime they would put you in prison okay i that i i know and uh, you know everybody had to be careful i, I remember my parents told me okay don't mention this don't mention that but other than that i think um, you know, with 15 years old, I was not too much into politics. Mm -hmm. So that's all I right. I can remember. Mm -hmm. And what happened after the revolution in 1975? Okay, there were good and bad things, okay? The, the, the good things were, you know, the fact that we received uh, lots of people from the colonies. Also, you know, right after the revolution, there was um, a, a big influence of the Communist Party so uh, uh, the russian communist party had a big influence so we were about to become a communist country but then six months after there was another kind of mini revolution that was going the other way you know maybe a little more to the right but in the end you know the things got balanced and we start having lots of party you know from the right from the left from the center that was a problem because uh, it was there was no stability mm -hmm. with so many parties no party had majority so it was difficult to have a government that would last a long time most of the the governments would last between six to one year mm -hmm. so we kept changing you know governments uh, until maybe the 1990s okay when the things got a little more stable the colonies were a problem because we received almost 1 million people, okay? So let's suppose it was around 10% of the population, okay? And those people came without anything. So we had to provide, you know, houses, uh, food, uh, and uh, some of them also brought some bad things, you know, like uh, they lost everything, so they start bringing some drugs like uh, marijuana and selling it. Other ones brought good things because they are entrepreneurs. So they started, you know, new companies. 
because in uh, in the colonies everything was new so all, everybody that went there wanted to do something new in portugal most of the companies you know they belong to some uh, rich people or families that have been there for a while but after the revolution they run away they went to brazil mm. <laughs> that you probably know yeah okay so now they are back you know maybe 20 years or 30 years but at the time they ran away and uh, so it was very difficult during those times the police was also losing some of the power that they had before so keeping the order was difficult mm -hmm. and you witness many uh difficult uh situations uh before and after the revolution and how that affected your personality or your views? Well, um, one thing that I don't remember so well is that, you know, what was happening before. The, you know, I, I know that the students were not uh, something that the government uh, liked because they were usually new ideas. They were asking for democracy. But then I remember that when I went to the university, almost every week, you know, there were some meetings to, you know, let's discuss this, let's evaluate that professor, he's a fascist, he's this, he's that. So everything changed. I remember those times, you know, where there were revolution, mini revolutions everywhere, you know, <laughs> in the school, in the universities. I think it was good you know i think now one of the big things that they did was the health system okay so the health system was something that came out of the revolution and it's free or almost free to everybody mm -hmm. and studying is also free but it was already free before but uh, the health system and uh, you know the pensions so everybody can go to the hospital they don't ask you if you have money okay you mm -hmm. get treated and whatever you need the public hospitals are the best ones mm -hmm. the only thing that you may find is that sometimes you, you, there is a waiting list mm -hmm. but other than that i think our else um, it, it system is, is quite good mm -hmm. uh, you were mentioning uh the university uh you have a major in mechanical engineering what was the motivation for choosing this degree okay so so my godfather you know he had a small business where he was selling parts for uh, cars so i thought he was a mechanical engineer okay and i liked also to make machines build things so it's okay mechanical engineering it's a good thing it turned out that i could have gone to any engineering okay because now when i look there they are quite similar and mechanical engineering i thought we were going to make engines and machines okay so we learned some of the theory but most uh, you know cars and machines they come already from japan or germany or italy so there's not a lot of opportunities for you to make machines okay mm -hmm. you know if i could decide right now uh, i would probably decide on civil engineering because you can make houses <laughs> okay or computer or computers okay computers right now it's something that you can you know find good jobs and computer science programming mm -hmm. but at the time i got to mechanical engineering okay? mm -hmm. <clears throat> in brazil uh it's not common for one to take uh, or classes in, in a mechanical engineering program how about in portugal 
Well, uh, when I got to uh, mechanical engineering, there was some, uh, the director of the, the department, he had been in the industry and he knew that, you know, most of the things that uh, a mechanical engineer end up doing are related with management. And uh, they knew that OR could be applied. So they start sending people to uh, England, you know, to specialize in uh, operation research. So by the time I got to the third year, so, so my uh, bash, my undergraduate was five years. So we had operation research on the third year mm -hmm. and we also had programming on the second. Oh, okay. So I, I, I learned in, in my case, I learned no, not visual, but basic, mm -hmm. basic. And then uh, I learned operation research because there was one of those guys that already went to the, you know, to uh, England and came with a degree in operation research. So he was teaching us. And most of the things we were doing was modeling using, you know, uh, uh, mass programming and solving it using simplex. Okay. Mm -hmm. But it was manual, manual simplex. Mm -hmm. I remember, you know, the professor giving us some uh, copies of the Danzig book. Yeah. Uh, so it was fascinating because, you know, you could model some business or something and you didn't need, you didn't know, need that many resources. Okay. All you need was a computer and you could write. So that interested me a lot. So by the time I got to the last year, you know, I was offered by you know some of those professors that came you know already with OR if I wanted to go and get a, a master and a PhD and initially they wanted me to go into quality control uh -huh. okay so I think quality control was important that time because the Japanese were using it to produce high quality cars mm -hmm. I remember a name that was very famous Tagushi ah yeah it was Tagushi but uh, you know they try to find okay let's find a university that is good in this area of uh, quality control so there was something in quebec but then uh, it was a little late at the time to apply for it then we consider also another place in uh, canada it was manitoba mm. but uh, it was also difficult because they were falling a different until somebody suggested berkeley okay say okay the ior department has some quality control so i end up coming to to berkeley mm -hmm. okay it was a difficult process because i had to take the gre exam at the last minute uh, uh, then uh, they lost the results <laughs> so i couldn't come uh, with that exam so i end up coming with the uh, british council uh, certificate of english and they accepted me okay at mm -hmm. berkeley and they also looked at my grades so i i was the best student in my year mm -hmm. so they and i they end up uh, accepting me but i came at the time berkeley was using the quarter system so it was three months three months three months okay mm -hmm. so i came in the middle of the quarter so it was difficult to um, to follow mm -hmm. okay because everybody was already in the middle of mm -hmm. uh, in 10 weeks or 12 weeks they were already mm -hmm. in the sixth week the people you know the colleagues are also difficult because in portugal you help 
each other here nobody helps you you know uh -huh. it's difficult you know, if you ask or you have some notes no i don't have any notes okay so the the beginning was very difficult and uh, i came in the middle of Jan uh, february that's when i met mauricio Rezend. okay uh -huh. and so i came with my luggage you know one in each end and i went directly to the department okay and there there it was uh, mauricio Mm. He was like a guardian angel because he helped me a lot, you mm -hmm. know, it was, uh, and he was speaking Portuguese or at least a kind of Portuguese. <laughs> yeah, he was able to understand me well, you know, I, because even when I go now to Brazil, some people think I'm from Argentina. Uh -huh. So, so he was able to understand me. Yeah, but, so, uh, but Jeff, Fernando, uh, before you, you continue with your story, uh, of the masters in Berkeley, uh, at some point while you were still in Portugal, you implemented the simplex algorithm in BASIC. Uh, was this yes. part of a uh, was this part of some task, or you decided to do it just for fun? Okay, so so you probably I don't know if you know you are younger than me, yeah. but uh, at my time simplex everything was by hand. Okay, mm -hmm. so it's very easy to make mistakes. And it's a very tedious. So at the time, there was a, a computer called uh, Sinclair that was developed in England. And um, I even went to Cambridge to buy a small packet, like a package of cigarettes was 16K. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I was able to put in memory around a matrix maybe of 50 by 50. And I decided to code you know, the steps that I was doing. It was not the revised simplex, it was just the, the tableau. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I coded that. It was not very efficient, I guess, you know, if uh, the scale uh, increases, uh, probably accumulate some errors because mm -hmm. I was do not doing that much, uh, you know, fancy things. But it was fun, you know, I, I could make now the tableaus right. Yeah, the actually. only thing I was not able to do, uh, or, or I didn't try so much, is that sometimes you'd like to write it as a fraction, like one divided by three, uh -huh. and I would get 0.333. But huh? most cases, I could transform that uh -huh. into. Uh, but it was fun because I was able, you know, to to make some uh, uh, larger um mass programming mm -hmm. and then put it in there and, and solve it mm -hmm. and uh how was the situation of or in portugal in the early 80s we we're talking about 40 years ago okay so so in the early 80s it was starting to be developed okay because some of the uh, companies you know like they i said there were some of those professors that were coming there were some uh, logistic problems that uh, we could use. There was also production planning, organization, uh, computers became important in the management. Okay, so it was starting, and some companies, you know, were starting to to ask for people to do some of those jobs. But I guess until the 90s, that's when it really started developing. Mm -hmm. But since Portugal is a small country, you know, it's not as developed as it probably is in, in Brazil. Because in Brazil, if you save a little bit, you know, you save a lot of money because mm -hmm. it's a large okay. In Portugal, you know, even if you have logistic problems, that is not a big distance. Mm -hmm. So there's not a lot you, you can save. Okay, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But uh, in terms of uh, 
you know, industrial organization, I think it was the most important thing, you know, layout, um, the concept of material requirements planning, mm. yeah, quality. quality was also uh, something that was required because they are trying to copy what was being done in Japan, uh-huh. making some uh, rules for quality, certification. Uh-huh. So, um, so I, see, I would say that around the 90s, that's when uh, OR started. Really being, took off. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, were you aware that Berkeley was a very prestigious university when you uh, arrived there? No, I had no idea Berkeley existed. Okay, so uh, Berkeley, I knew uh, the name MIT, Harvard, but Berkeley it was not on my knowledge. <laughs> uh, I learned later that it was very good in terms of OR and it was competing at the time with Stanford because some, uh, you know, Danzig, I think it was in uh, Berkeley yeah. when, and then he moved to, to Stanford and many other, you know, people that were uh, good in terms of OR, they were from the IE OR department in Berkeley, but mm-hmm. uh, I had no idea it was good or, or bad. <laughs> but you spent an entire year without receiving grant. Uh, how did you manage to survive? Well, uh, when I came to Berkeley, I was supposed to have a scholarship from the Portuguese government, but uh, the inflation was very high in Portugal, 30%, not as high as it was in Brazil, but 30% was a lot. So some people were keeping the money in the bank, okay, and they didn't send it to me, okay. So the first year in Berkeley, I was able to delay the payment of the tuition, and to survive, I had to uh, work for the transportation department, okay. I would go to San Francisco between four and six, and I would count the cars that go in one direction, turn left and right, and they would pay me $12 per hour. So I was surviving with that. <laughs> wow, yeah. that's interesting. Uh, and. Did you have to write a dissertation to obtain your master's degree? Yes, it was like a mini dissertation. I did it in quality control. Okay. And also it was a little bit re, you know, related with reliability mm-hmm. because uh, at the time that was the thing that was most close to quality control. Okay. It was Professor Barlow. So I did something, you know, in uh, evaluating the reliability of a system that had some parallel. So I, I again, wrote some code in visual, not, not visual, in basic. Mm-hmm. Okay. So basic was at that time a difficult language. It was <laughs> the only one, but it was difficult because of what they call now spaghetti code. <laughs> there were no local variables. So you had to be very careful, you know, how to use. And uh, memory was also a problem because you could, you had to reuse variables. Uh-huh. So sometimes you were using the same variable, but you were forgetting that it was supposed to be, you know, some other values in there. So that was the cause of making yeah. debugging codes, codes yeah, I debugging. Think was hard because of many go to's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then using reusing the variables was also a problem. Uh-huh. Yeah, you also did your PhD at Berkeley, right? Yes, so I did my master and then after one year I had to come back because uh, initial, so once I came back, you know, I finally got the scholarship, the money, (laughs) I was in Portugal. But in any way, I prepared in such a way that uh, I, you know, I tried to do what they call a prelim 
exam so that I could go into the PhD. And uh, I, when I came back, I was able to extend the the scholarship. Mm-hmm. So, so I came back again. You know, in in January, I went back in December, and I came back in January, and uh, pursued the. But mm-hmm. then I changed. You know, instead of being quality control, I went into production planning, mm-hmm. which I liked more. Mm-hmm. Did you have to take additional classes? Yeah, I think I think it was a year and a half more. Mm of classes you know doing you know many and they also asked for some uh, classes in different departments so i had some uh, classes in statistics in uh, mechanical engineering in business mm. i had accounting accounting was a, an error because uh, it's really boring <laughs> but uh, so i had to do that and then after that you have to prepare for what they call the qualifying mm-hmm. okay so uh, so during that time, I was taking classes and I was also working as a um, research assistant. Oh, and how did you handle the pressure <coughs> when preparing for exams and the qualification? Well, th- I think after the first year, everything was easier because mm-hmm. the first year was the really tough one. Okay, I didn't have money. I didn't, uh, you know, know the country. So after that, you know, I already had some money that was left from the previous <laughs> year. I got the research assistance that would pay me is so and I was working on something that I really liked, you know, production planning was a little more in my area than quality control. Mm-hmm. So uh, there wasn't that much pressure. Okay, I think um, it would have been better if uh, my family was there or so. But uh, other than that, I think it was okay. Okay. Uh, and what was your PhD research about? Okay, so I um, I did two kinds of things. One of them was related with Intel. Okay, so Intel was using MRP material to do the planning mm-hmm. of the. So what we did is that we tried to change MRP, which is a discrete uh, oriented uh, tool, into a continuous one because that's more or less what the process of making semiconductors is. So we kind of created a MRP, rate-based MRP. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the second thing was, since MRP does not handle capacity, so you determine the quantities using the lead times, but sometimes you are asking too, too much quantity in a certain uh, period. So we tried to make that rate-based and formulate it as an LP, a large LP, Mm -hmm. that would take into account the lead times, the rates, and the capacity. So if I could not do something in a certain time period, I would move it to the next one. Mm. And that was most of the, the things that I did for Intel. At the same time, I also worked for, uh, not directly, but my... uh, supervisor you know he was working um supervisors phd advisor mm-hmm. he was working also for a company that sells detergent clorox mm. and they had a classical problem which is a single machine where you have to produce several products mm. and every time you change the product you have to clean the machine so that is a setup setup time yeah yeah so then they wanted to extend where you have many products and you have many machines and uh, the 
the problem was you want to minimize the cost of carrying inventory, but mm -hmm. you also want to minimize the cost of having to change all the time. And you want to avoid shortages. So that was the main difficulty. Avoiding shortages was very important because mm -hmm. if you have 1000 products and there are always some products that are going to run out. Okay. So you have to, at the same time that you are scheduling, you have to change the quantities so that, you know, you, okay, let's suppose that I have 50 products that are going to run out tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So if I only have uh, 25 machines, then I have to make sure that uh, I maybe make some today mm -hmm. and make them tomorrow because mm -hmm. I cannot make 50 products at the same time since right. I only have. So I did something that adjusts dynamically the time when you have to start producing and also the quantity so that you minimize the cost, but you also avoid shortages. Yeah. So you work with planning and scheduling in your PhD. Yes, yes. Yeah. The research. Uh, but did Intel put the results of your research into practice? They applied it. Okay. So my uh, PhD advisor, he ended up, uh, you know, taking the code that I was developing and he made it into a system. Mm -hmm. So he was selling it as a consulting to um, Intel mm -hmm. and later to AMD. Mm -hmm. And then later, I think he even went to Korea and he oh. did it in some of those, um, you know, semiconductor companies. Yeah. At the time you were coding everything in Fortran. Yes. So uh, the coding, uh, most of it in um, for Intel was in Fortran. Right. Yes. And when you had to solve MIP models, uh, how did you do it? Okay. So there was some package, you know, that we had there that could solve uh, MIPs. In our case, for Intel, most of it was uh, rate oriented, so we could go, you know, get uh, just continuous variables. Okay, so mm -hmm. it was a quantity. If you round it, there was no problem. Mm -hmm. The problem that I did for Clorox, where there was that one required yeah, yeah. zero one because variables. it's a sequence. You cannot yeah. just so that one was not. Uh, I was not able to. So I could model it, but uh, the quality of the solution was really bad. Mm -hmm. In some cases, it was even difficult to get one feasible solution. Okay. Oh. So I had to change the model and combine a heuristic with the, the MIP. Right. <laughs> and... Otherwise. So I don't remember the, the name of the software that we were using, but um, was it by IBM? It was by IBM, I think mm -hmm. it was. Yeah. Uh, your first conference experience was a bit disappointing. Yes, it was. Uh, I remember that very well. It was in New Orleans. It was one of those. Uh, I don't know if it was Orsa Teams conference. I, I now. But it was scheduled in the last day, in the last session, okay? <laughs> so uh, I guess uh, there was my, my advisor there and maybe another person. So there wasn't that many people attending. So it was not that good, but... Uh, yeah, it okay. happens, yeah. <laughs> now, I think it's good for listeners to, to hear that because that might happen to them and for them not to feel that bad because it's just part of it. And... Yeah, the, you know... Uh, during the time I was at the conference, I said, well, I'm glad that I met the last one. I can prepare for it. But then I saw that, you know, they when they put you at the end, that means they, they don't care much. <laughs> for what 
<laughs> yeah, that's debatable, but uh, <laughs> I understand your, your point. Yeah, you finished your PhD in 1987 and you got two nice papers from your thesis. One appeared in Management Science and the other one appeared in EJOR in 1998. Uh, why did it take so long for them to be published? Okay, so when I went to Portugal, I wanted to pursue that, but you know, there was no email. There was no tear off to, to write because at the time there was a kind of LaTeX that I had written that. So tear off was not available. And then, you know, I was a young professor. So what they do at the University of Porto is that they give you a lot of bureaucracy. Okay. So I was head of department. I was head of, uh, you know, HR. So I had to do all those things that are not really... Yeah, a, a, a tons of administrative work. Yes. Okay. And then when I was trying to get rid of all those things, I had to go to the army. So by the time I was around 30 years old, and, uh, you know, the, the army uh, called me. Wow. I mean, I it's... At least in Brazil, you do that when you're 18 or so, but uh, doing that at the age of 30 is a bit unexpected. Yeah, so in Portugal, I think it was around 21 that you were supposed to go, but oh. since I went to the PhD, oh, no, not 21, you could do it after you finish, so around 22, 23. But since I went to the PhD, I had to postpone it. So mm -hmm. I asked for a postponement. Sometimes they would say yes, sometimes they would consider me... Uh, I don't know those people who run from the army. I don't know what is the the word in uh, in English. Mm -hmm. So once I got back, I thought they would call me. Okay, but uh, no, they waited two or three years, and then they called me when I was thirty, mm -hmm. and they put me in the air force <laughs> because I was a mechanical engineer. They thought I would be a good uh, aeronautical engineer. Okay. So I was doing the, you know, those times with people who were 18 or 19 mm -hmm. and wanted to be a pilot. I didn't <laughs> want to be a pilot, but I was there, you know. So I wasted one year of my life, you know, just there, you know, fighting an imaginary enemy. They teach you how to, you know, manage guns. They take you to the country and you have to be there two weeks without to toilet paper, without taking a shower and... You have to learn how to, you know, find directions with the stars, things like that. Okay, so that's what I learned. <laughs> I, I already forgot everything, but <laughs> that was uh, trouble. So that wasted also another year of my life. And then... Research-wise, you, know, you tried to, to work on uh, scheduling problems too, once you came back from the yeah. army. So once I came back from the army, you know, uh, the, those team of professors were very active. So they they created um, an institute at the university that would provide services to the outside. Mm. So I could work for other companies as a consultant. Mm -hmm. So there was many projects, okay? And most of them were job shop, at least in the north of Portugal, you know, job shop uh, scheduling, MRP uh, things. So I start working in consulting, and that was also another way of getting a little more money mm -hmm. to, to do. So that kept me busy until, 
you know, until in maybe 94, 95. Were you married by then? I was, ma- I got married on 91. Oh, okay. 91, okay. Mm-hmm. So then I had a little more responsibility. I had to pay for a, a loan for my house and things like that. So I had to get some money. Mm-hmm. Still, you know, the computer started being easier to, to buy and I could uh, find uh, some version of LaTeX. So I started writing some uh, some um, code and uh, some text you, that I did in my uh, PhD thesis. So I ended up having, you know, the first paper with my advisor, the one in management science. Mm-hmm. I think... Uh, they even inclu- included some other person that was, you know, doing some uh, master in, at Berkeley with my advisor. Mm-hmm. And then later on, I already had enough code. So that's when the other one um, came in 1998. So you only had access to computer uh, in the early 90s? Well, computers that were able to, you know, to solve integer, you know, we had very small ones. And in mechanical engineering, there were some that were good for structural engineering, you mm-hmm. know, but uh, you could not have any CPLEX or, uh, you know, any code like that. So you have to do it in a PC mm-hmm. and uh, you had to do it on yourself because at the time it was a mechanical engineering department. So there wasn't that many things in our area. There was something that was a little easier, was simulation. We did some simulation, Mm -hmm. you know, especially visual simulation, where you show what's going on and people can say, okay, the problem is here. It's easy to explain to people, but, uh, but in the end, you know, mass programming for scheduling, it was very difficult because the models were difficult to to solve. They could Mm -hmm. not scale. So that's when I changed direction in 1994. You went to uh, a jury in Pennsylvania, you took part of a jury, a PhD jury, and that particular visit changed your life. Yes, it's true. So I went to Lehi, and while I was waiting for that uh, uh, jury, I had some time at the library, and there was something good because we have plenty of, uh, you know, journals in there, you could make copies, something that was very difficult in Portugal. So I already had in mind something about genetic algorithms, but I didn't agree so much with the binary uh, zero one uh, genetic algorithm. So I was looking for something on genetics and I found the paper by James Bean, Mm -hmm. which was random key genetic algorithms. Okay. So I found it very interesting. And uh, once I came back to Portugal, I started implementing it. And uh, I changed a little bit, you know, that because the way they they were doing crossover, Mm -hmm. they were picking two chromosomes at random. So I said, well, it doesn't make sense to make it random. I probably should pick the best one. Okay, so I started doing the biased uh, random key at the time. I was not calling it, uh, but I always did it biased because it seemed better. And it was something really easy because there is not uh, that difficulty in programming it. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to, you know, like, for example, you have to invert a matrix. You have to know a lot of things, you know, to the error. But over there, everything starts every time you evaluate a chromosome. So it doesn't accumulate. So it was something really enjoyable for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I made a, a library 
in uh, Visual Basic, and I start using it for a job shop. Mm -hmm. uh, did you struggle to publish the first paper using these new ideas? Well, it took me. You know, I I think I we publish in a Portuguese or, uh, but. The, one of them uh, which was in assembly line balancing mm -hmm. it took a lot of time you know because it was in the journal of heuristics and uh, you know some of the referees they wanted to okay why don't you compare with uh, some other data but the problem was that some of that data was not available And uh, interestingly, you know, in 1998, that's when uh, Mauricio came to Portugal. So I was presenting that, uh, you know, a summary of that paper in the assembly line balancing. And I was explaining, okay, I cannot compare the solutions. I can only compare the values because the authors don't make available. And one of the authors was there. He said, oh, I can, I can uh, give you the, the, solution. the solutions whenever. Mm -hmm. It's just... Uh, send me an email okay so uh, i was glad so i sent the email but uh, until today you know i never got any so mm -hmm. some of the referees uh, were asking why don't you compare the solutions to see and uh, so that made it uh, a little difficult uh -huh. so that that's when i start uh, you know collaborating more with mauricio because he was already known mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, somebody that works in AT&T in the U.S., it's more reliable than a Portuguese <laughs> that nobody knows. Yeah, yeah, I know. So, uh, so I think after he saw what I was doing, he also started working on uh, uh, this kind of algorithms. And by 2002, I think we both published. I, pu I published the, the one on assembly and he did something else with some other person that was working or... Uh, or uh, was an intern at AT&T. But you didn't have the name uh, by then, right? The bias, random key, genetic no, algorithm. No, no. Well, I was doing bias, uh, but uh, there was no name, okay, uh, at the time, okay? Uh -huh. So that's uh, that was defined around 2010, 2011. Mm -hmm. So we, around 2002, I started working a lot with Mauricio and uh, we realized that uh, the most important things that we were doing first it was bias bias helps a little bit but the main thing was that everything that we were doing was separating the evolutionary engine mm -hmm. from the decoder mm -hmm. so we decided to write a paper that would explain that and uh, the name just uh, appeared when we start writing the paper okay mm -hmm. so mauricio was looking at the things and so oh, so so you are really biasing it here okay so yeah so let's call it bias <laughs> okay right. uh, so the name didn't come out until it was i think 2011. wow it took a long time nearly 10 years yes so uh, the name is not really important you know what we were doing but uh, but now it's known as biased mm -hmm. but uh, i think the most important thing is the separation between the yeah. engine and the decoder right, because you okay. can do the uh, operations uh with yeah. the chromosomes and you don't have to mind about visibility checking yeah. and things like that uh, and it's pretty generic 
right? Yes, and the good thing is that you can easily try different decoders yeah. for the same problem. Okay, you can try one. Usually, you know, the first one doesn't work. You have mm -hmm. to make, and uh, you don't have to change the engine. So mm -hmm. the way it works, you know, crossover mutation, uh, it, that is done. You do it once, and that's done uh, forever. Mauricio okay, so even uh, published a library uh, with uh, Rodrigo Toso. Uh, yes, later. yes. So that uh, also helped uh, you know the 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 algorithm be better known because people now have a library; they don't have to worry about coding it. Mm -hmm. They may have to change a little bit in some cases, but that also helps. Yeah, yeah we ourselves used. Uh, it's a C nice C plus plus library. Can no. we can easily implement uh, heuristics uh, for yeah. several problems, and indeed, it's very helpful and practical. Yeah, and now you probably can find in Julia, in Python. Uh, I think some of the authors, uh, Carlos Andrade. Mm. I think he, he made he took the one from Rodrigo, he modified it, and he is now in. Julia mm -hmm. and Python, and uh, somebody else also did it in Java. So, oh. so you can have any flavor of language. <laughs> yeah. Pretty soon you'll have something in another language. Yeah, that's excellent. <laughs> and and throughout the years, you developed several enhancements. Uh, can you comment on some of them? Yes. Okay. So, um, over the time, we realized that you know. Uh, there are some components in the the structure that were important. Okay, so uh, the evolutionary engine is important, but we can incorporate some know-how and make it better. Okay, mm -hmm. so the first thing that we start doing was a local search. Okay, so we take the basic idea is that you take the chromosome from the genetic, mm -hmm. you construct a solution. And then you improve it. Okay. And that improvement, the local search, helps a lot. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, combining the local search is very easy. You know, it's in the decoder, so you can do it, you know, initially without any local search. Mm -hmm. If it works well, then you don't have to. Then if you can, then you add, and that's all. Mm -hmm. Another thing that uh, we did after that is that now that you are using local search you are getting to a different solution that is the, the one that is generated di directly from the chromosome mm -hmm. so maybe we could create a chromosome that generates that solution directly mm -hmm. okay so we start using you know correction of the the updating okay the chromosome mm -hmm. so i start with a chromosome I get an, a solution, I improve it, and then I create a chromosome that gives me directly. And that helps in terms of quality, mm -hmm. because when you cross over, you are crossing now the good solution already, and also speeds up, you know, mm -hmm. you get to the... Yeah, it converges faster. Faster, yeah. A... So, so there are two things that Local. improve, you know, the convergence and quality. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in some other problems, we uh, realize it is important to define a good fitness. Mm -hmm. okay, so there are many problems in uh, combinatorials where different solutions give you the same fitness. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Let, let me give you, the, for example, the job shop problem. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you use the make span, 
there are many solutions that may give you the same make span. Yeah, okay? ties. You you changed in between, but the the, the file yeah, make span okay. remains the same. And then we say, okay, so how can I differentiate? Are all these solutions as good? Well, in terms of make span, they are as good. However, the idea is which one it's easier to improve. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that should be reflected in the fitness. So if I have two solutions, I should make the one that is easier to improve, the one that is going to be crossed over mm -hmm. and reproduced more. So for example, for the job shop, let's suppose you have a make span of 10. Mm -hmm. If you look at all the machines, and let's suppose that you look at another one that is nine, another one that is eight, another one that is 10, 10, 10, 10, mm. okay? So all the machines that are 10, if you have many machines with 10, it's probably going to be more difficult than if you only have one machine with 10 and all the others are smaller. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, so we modified the fitness. So, so the fitness now it's 10 mm -hmm. plus a fraction that tells you whether you know the other values are far away from 10 or close. Okay, so right. if they are really far away, then you're going to have 10 something. Yeah. If they are very close, then you are going to get very close to 11. So you're making use of additional information of the solution yes. to try to guide a search. And so now, so now two solutions that were equal with the, the max span mm -hmm. are different. Yeah. And that is also something that is very you know important in scheduling and in other things. We also use that in the... Uh, maximizing the open stack problem, okay, oh. which is also one of the, uh, and uh, I think almost everywhere we can use that. Uh, for example, for the container loading, mm -hmm. so you can measure the percentage. Mm -hmm. But sometimes, you know, you have the same percentage of the container field. Mm -hmm. But one of them has a large empty space that is not being used. And the other one has many small empty spaces. So the one that is as a large space, it's going to be easy to improve. Mm -hmm. Because you have, if you have very small spaces... Yeah, you have room to, to improve. Yeah. Yeah. So that one, we also modified it. Okay, so we have... So we've been using that uh, idea, you know, several times. And um, other than this, you know, uh, we... Uh, but that's already quite a lot of enhancements. Yeah, uh, yeah. So we sometimes combine uh, some of those things, you know, together. Mm -hmm. uh, all of three or some of them, sometimes we cannot. For example, uh, once you have apply a, a local search, we cannot come up with a chromosome that gives you that solution directly. Mm -hmm. Because... Uh, there is not a unique way of translating yeah, I, the chromosomes. I see. I see what you mean. Yeah. So in that case, but it was the combination of those three or four things. It was, um, and then we applied to to several problems. Okay. Yeah. As we can see in your list of publications, oh. there are many of them. Yeah. Um, in 2015, you visited Mauricio Hazendi at Amazon. Um, and then later on, you spent a sabbatical period there and you ended up joining Amazon. And tell me why you decided to, to leave academia and how was the process uh, to join Amazon? 
Okay, so uh, I was working on, uh, you know, in Portugal, I got a grant, okay, and uh, the grant, uh, they allow you to invite some person from uh, another country, you know, that is also a researcher. So Mauricio was working with me in the, those Portuguese grants and projects, and uh, we've been working since, uh, I think, 2005, 2006, while he was at AT&T, and we kept working. And then one of those grants that was working until 2016, one of those last uh, meetings for the project, Mauricio was already at uh, Amazon. Okay. Mm -hmm. So instead of going to AT&T, I came to Amazon. And I really enjoyed the environment. Okay. The, the problems that they were working and the company was growing. So it was really applying, you know, what you know to solve problems. So uh, I really enjoyed the environment. So since I had the sabbatical coming in the next year, so I said, okay, let's try and see if I can come here for a sabbatical. So we tried, you know, an application. I came for an application in January of or February of 2016. Mm -hmm. Everything went fine, but then, you know, Amazon has a process of evaluating where they need to have what they call a bar raiser. A bar raiser is somebody that is trying to label the quality of everybody that is being hired, okay, or going to work. So for some reason, they did not include that type of person, okay, mm -hmm. that is trained just to do that, it follows some rules. So I had to repeat the process again in July of that year. So we repeated that with all the, you know, this time the bar razor was there uh -huh. and uh, I was accepted. But then, you know, the person who was in charge of the process left to another company. Okay. So I was again, you know, forgotten. Yeah. Limbo. And then around the October, November, we started the, the process, which, you know, requires that you get a visa to stay in Amazon. And finally, I started, uh, my sabbatical was already three months uh, because we start in September. Mm -hmm. So September, October, no, no, maybe four months. So I arrived on the 6th of uh, January of 2017. Okay. I stayed uh, that year. I enjoyed it a lot. So I asked the uh, you know the university in Portugal for an extension mm -hmm. without uh, pay, mm -hmm. and then I start working as a regular person in uh, Amazon mm -hmm. until uh, until today. Okay, mm -hmm. so I, I I enjoyed it a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, for right. OWA people, this is the best you can find. Okay because it has all sorts of problems, you know, logistics, inventory, even for pricing, you know, pricing, uh, forecasting. Uh, it's, it's really amazing, you know, the problems that you have. And uh, given the volume uh, and the, the values, Amazon, anything that you can save, it's very good. Yeah, yeah. You feel really that you are having some uh, impact. Yeah, on the... that note, uh, can you briefly summarize uh, what you do at Amazon, your work and the projects you took part? Okay, so Amazon has uh, three main areas, okay? It has what they call uh, first mile, 
middle mile and last mile. Okay. And let, maybe I should have started with the type of facilities that we have. We have what we call fulfillment centers. Mm -hmm. That's where you store the products, okay, that come from the suppliers. Then we have to ship the product from those fulfillments to where the customer wants them. So first they go through sometimes a sort center. The sort center divides the thing into several locations and they end up in what we call delivery stations. Okay, so we have these three facilities and the movement of the products from the suppliers to the FC, it's called first mile. Mm. The internal movements between a fulfillment center, sort center and delivery station, it's called middle mile. And then the part that delivers from the delivery station to the customer, it's called last mile. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I worked in the middle mile to start with, okay? And the first uh, work that I did was routing, you know, planning how we should address the routing. Mm -hmm. Also related with that, I worked on a problem which is repositioning the trailers so when you move some product, the trailer is full, but right. then you have to bring back the empty trailer. Right. Okay? And bringing back the empty trailer is not adding value. Yeah, okay? that so trip. We, uh -huh. Okay, so we, we had to optimize that so that we could save money, okay? Mm -hmm. And then also related with that, Amazon has aeroplanes. Okay? Mm -hmm. So we need to also do you know, plenty of the aeroplanes. But one of the things that we need to do is that we have to make sure the aeroplanes are available. Mm -hmm. And to have the aeroplanes available, we need to have the aircraft engines available. Mm -hmm. So I also worked on the planning of the maintenance of the the engines, okay? When they should be removed, when they should be repaired, if we have enough uh, engines to replace in the aeroplane, uh, shall we buy them? Shall we lease them? Uh, when should they, we replace them? And finally, I moved to the last mile. Okay. So last mile, it's very close to the customer. And in this particular area where I'm working, Amazon is uh, a kind of Uber uh, like um, workers mm -hmm. that supply products for us. They are individuals that Amazon tells them, would you like to work uh, for us every day or several days a week? So people who have a car, you know, they can, they just put some packages in the trunk and they deliver them. We call that Amazon Flex because it's flexible mm -hmm. and we need to plan that. So planning, that means how many drivers I need, Shall they work a lot of time or not so much when uh, they have to start? And also, we have to make the route. <clears throat> so we have many routes and uh, there is a lot of uncertainty in these kind of things because, you know, sometimes if it rains, people don't like to work. Uh, then we have price, you know, sometimes you know, the price goes up, sometimes the price goes down. So you have to make decisions whether they are short term or they are a little longer mm -hmm. because if you can decide the longer term usually you get better prices so that is the kind of problems that i work you know mm -hmm. and <coughs> regarding methodologies 
Uh, are you allowed okay. to comment on what you guys do? <laughs> well, um, I can tell you some of the tools, you know, some of them are, you know, mass programming. Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, with uncertainty, we use stochastic, uh, you know, programming by using several scenarios. Uh, sometimes we use simulation. I cannot go into the details, yeah, but uh, the, tools, the tools are... And then the scale, you know, one thing that uh, we have to be aware at Amazon is that we need to solve very large problems very fast, okay? So um, sometimes, you know, you have a, an a approach that works very well if it's the problem is smaller, but if it's too many, too large, then it doesn't work, okay? And we need to have sometimes, so we have to sacrifice quality, uh, the optimal. We don't that we know we we are not getting the optimal, but we are getting a solution very mm -hmm. fast, and uh, we need to revise it. So, um, yeah, sometimes it's not just quality of the solution; it's the combination of uh, all those things, you know. <clears throat> but uh, it's really enthusiastic, and uh, you know, it's very exciting. Yeah, there is. There are many, many applications, especially in logistics, as you mentioned, and certainly there might be many opportunities to put OR in, in practice, and you know, to get optimized solutions that will be yeah. result in you know a lot of uh, profit for Amazon. Yeah, I think almost everywhere you have uh, the opportunity of using uh, OR. Okay. And I never worked in a, you know, in the department that we call AWS, which mm. is Amazon Web Services, mm. where you have the possibility of buying a virtual computer. Okay. Oh. So over there, you also have the problems. You know, what computers I should buy? You know, how to allocate? Because these are virtual computers. So I can give you now that computer for two hours and then use it for another person for, so we have to constantly be, you know, allocating those things. So that also is, but uh, there is also machine learning, a lot of machine learning, especially in forecasting. Mm -hmm. Because, um, you know, there are many parameters going into there. And uh, I don't know if you know, but Amazon makes a speaker that calls it's called Alexa. Yeah, <laughs> very famous. Yeah. So this kind of speaker uses a lot of machine learning to understand what you say. And uh, so uh, I think Amazon became also a very a company that is expert in machine learning. OK, they have uh, they even have an internal university called the Machine Learning University. Yeah, they're really taking it seriously. Yeah, yeah. So they have opportunities, and most projects are secret. So there are many things going on. Yeah, let's see what happens in the next few years yeah. regarding the advances. See, one of the things that many people know is that we are working with drones. You know, uh -huh. and uh, you know, so soon you know, we will probably start delivering things with uh, drones. And there are some ones that go in the the payments. You know, they go and they deliver. Uh -huh. So that uh, that becomes more reliable because uh, you know these kind of machines they work whether it's cold or not cold, they they don't feel tired. Uh, you know, driving trucks is also one of the things that you know it's publicly known that like like Tesla has those cars that drive self-driving. Mm -hmm. 
So self-driving trucks is also something that it's uh, important for uh, delivery, mm-hmm. but it, it's really amazing, you know? Yeah. Uh, one can tell that uh, Amazon is putting a lot of effort in analytics, uh, OR, machine learning, and uh, it's certainly, uh, I would not say dominating <laughs> the the field, but uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a company that it's, certainly attracting a lot of attention and and many employees as a result right? yeah. yes so when i started i think there were around 350,000 and now i think it's around 1 million yeah so wow. it but, really went up yeah yeah but joseph and tell me any plans of retirement well uh, i'm now 62 so I'll have some plans, you know, soon. <laughs> I don't know when, but in Portugal, you can get retired around 66.8 months. Okay. Uh, uh, so, um, yeah, so- sometime between now and uh, 67, I'll probably do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, right now, I am. Uh, but then you will you'll return to Portugal, to Porto, and and be there yes so yeah yeah if i do retire i'll uh, i'll go back to porto okay mm-hmm. and uh, um, i don't know i i may also consider going back to portugal and working amazon there in mm-hmm. amazon europe or something uh-huh. but uh, right now i i have nothing really well defined yeah well uh, joseph and it was great to have you here i had a lot of fun talking to you uh so I hope you had a nice time too. Well, it was my pleasure and I thank you very much for the invitation. I think you did a great job just preparing all that. <laughs> yeah, it was an amazing work. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Ah, thank you so much. Muito obrigado, José Fernando. Uh, Muito obrigado. I, I can't wait to, to visit you in Porto when you were there. And of course, yeah. you're most welcome to visit us here in João Pessoa, here in Brazil. Okay. Yes, I'll probably do that as soon as I can. Yeah. So with a lot of pleasure. Yeah. So take care. All the best, and see you soon. Ciao. Thank you. Até Ciao. logo. Bye. Até logo.